Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as usual. We are getting close, Mark, to episode 200 and our fantastic swag of giveaway prizes goodies whatever you want to call it episode 200 and all you need to do is to send an email to vetgurus at gmail.com and say hello and where you're from and what you do and that's it you're entered into the giveaway and mark we had a bit of a rush on of on people last week didn't we um not that i'm discouraging people from entering but you've still got a very high chance of winning it's not like a lotto is it where you have one in bajillion chance of winning you're looking at one in in hundreds if if that if not less than that um so it's good to see people are leaving it to the last minute what like what vets do for conferences isn't it they tend to do that you need to unmute yourself too mark um, if you want to chat um and um because it's i don't know whether it's the same in overseas vet um conferences mark but um vets typically because as you know you and i have both been involved with helping run a few conferences over the years, um, we start panicking about people registering for the conferences until the last couple of weeks. But that's what vets do, don't they? And in these COVID times, who knows whether or not they will turn up to conferences. So, yeah, we heard a few entries, haven't we, Mark? It's been a bit of a spike over the last week. A spike. A spike. Yes. We've had a spike in numbers. Um, and, they, and they've been... Um, Lovely a cluster. Little, We've had a cluster. Oh, it's getting the word. Those words are getting a bit threatening now. Um, yes. Uh, no. No. We've. They've been exciting to read through, and people have uh, relayed little um, uh, uh, moments of their life in just a few paragraphs, just letting us know that um, that they're listening to us and what they're doing at the moment. It, it's it's uh, it's it's an excellent little thing. We got this one. Brendan, I wanted to tell you about uh, uh, you. You mentioned the photograph to me, but we got uh, a lovely, ah, yes. a lovely message from Val in the US. Um, good evening, love the podcast today, and had to make a comment about the cricket. Um, yeah, just fill in. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. Fill in for the listeners who may have only just joined us for this particular episode. I Mark, think it, what happened? I think it was it episode, was the last yeah. episode, and and as is always the case. Uh, you know, we're rushing to get this done. The extensive period of research before the podcast um, was coupled with a quick visit to uh, to get some uh, crickets for my frogs. Uh, they, you know, they regularly require um, some uh, uh, some feeding, and so I had the the uh, box of crickets on the um, kitchen bench ready to be delivered to said uh, green tree frogs, and um, and they were. Giving us a little bit of uh, background music, and 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 I've listened to some of the podcast myself, and I realise now, while I was sitting here and finding it quite soothing and uh, you know natural in the background, it was a bit obtrusive for the conversation. So I apologise to all our wonderful listeners for that slightly annoying, temperature dependent cricket creaking in the background of the last podcast. Yes, and back to and that was prompted by that email from from Val, wasn't it? And Val had a, a lovely photograph of the the um, 
of the the fawns, if I remember correctly, Brendan. Do you want to describe that picture? <laughs> well, it was quite funny, and I I I um I won't put it up one because it's disappeared into the ether, Mark, into the internets. Um, because I tried to forward it to you because you did look at it briefly, but you didn't see what was in the foreground of the picture. It was a it was a picture of some fawns, some baby fawns that were drinking from a a little milk bar there, Mark. Um, with with um four or five of them. Um lined up ready to be um, attacked by the fawns that were drinking. There was one fawn in the background, but um, there was a child, looks like a, a, a fairly young child, that was decided it, it wanted a little <laughs> bit of drink and milk, and it was lined up as well. Um, perhaps it was um, one of Val's children or one of her relatives. Um, Certainly will be. It quite... can be guaranteed it's the relative of a veterinarian one way or another. Yes, yes, but um, quite amusing photo. Thank you, Val, and thank you for your email and you are entered into the give 200th giveaway and thank you to our supporters and our main sponsors um chemical essentials oxbow animal nutrition australia oxbow australia and also microchips australia who have um, contributed some fantastic giveaways into the goodie pack mark so there you go um anything else you want to chat about before we get stuck into your news story, Mark. No, no, I'm straight into the news. It's brisk and punchy this week, Brendan. Um, my article tells us the story of um, what should we do when, like, uh, it's uh, nest boxes. They're a wonderful thing. The number of hollows in the environment, the number of nesting sites um, has dropped precipitously as we've cleared the land. And particularly in the US, it's become a very common thing to set up some nest boxes for uh, for breeding birds to use. Um, and the one of the queries, one of the sort of quandaries that people that have these nest boxes uh, often worry about is um, what should they do after they've been used? What is the best thing um, to do uh, with the contents of the nest box um, once it's been used. Um, and it does depend. It is, it's an interesting article that goes, one of the things I like about articles like this is ones that accept a bit of um, nuance and subtlety and uh, situational, you know, there's no absolute rule. When you have a nest box, there's no um, uh, a f- a final word to say you should do this or that. Um, it's always good to try and keep them clean, um, to try and minimise the chance of uh, the the of infectious disease transferring between broods. Um, here in Australia, we do have. Uh, there's a couple of interesting examples. Um, uh, those uh, hollow logs are often the site that um, cockatoos can um, get PBFD, lorikeets, so um, it's always good to try and minimise the contamination of a nesting site that way. Um, But there are other birds that um, benefit from the stimulation of cleaning out a nest box, that that's sort of part of their ritual um, to build a new nest is emptying out the stuff that's already in there and cleaning it up. So stealing some of that process lessens the likelihood of um, of successfully breeding. Once again, in Australia here, there's been a very uh, interesting, uh, one of the endangered species in Tasmania um, uh, had uh, the um, uh, 40 spotted partalote had um, quite a difficult time breeding um, and researchers down there were able to uh, 
um, assist those birds. There's a particular fly that um, uh, parasitizes the um, fle- the pre-fledgling nestlings um, and kills about 90% of them. But um, by setting those nest boxes up, they, the, the birds wouldn't use them if they were disturbed, but the researchers were able to uh, impregnate some feathers with ivermectin. The birds would collect those feathers and line their nests with them and thereby uh, prevent the flies from um, irritating the the young birds and survival rates have jumped just in a couple of years uh, significantly. Very clever, Mark. Very clever, yes. And it's amazing some of the, the different types of websites. I mean, this this is from nestwatch.org, Mark, so <laughs> website des- designed um, where birds come to life. It, it's a subsidiary website from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which we've spoken about before, which is excellent. And um, it's... It's a nationwide US nationwide nest monitoring program, and I've got I've just been browsing the website as you've been chatting there, and they have a whole series of nest box um, instructions to build nest boxes for various species of birds that are seen in the US. There, Mark, and you can also take the online quiz and get certified, Mark. I think you need to do that um, in order to find nests and record data and um, I'd be very embarrassed if you um, fail your certification <laughs> mark um, for nest watch um, and if you support nest watch mark if, if, if you um, donate one hundred dollars plus to the mark they'll give you a free mug there wow. you go. so you know what, what more could you want gee makes our giveaway look good uh, yeah. <laughs> but no I, I'm very impressed with the Cornell lab of ornithology's um, um, whole um, philosophy and and all their subsidiary websites mark they do they definitely do a marvelous job with um with the work the department that works with birds is world leading um and uh and anita who wrote that article um i think there is a a string of um of graduate students who work with birds and uh, write their blogs and information posts, and it's an outstanding resource for those of us who love birds. Most definitely. And speaking of outstanding resources, Mark, I've got to talk about my one and only article, and that's about pigs and rodents breathing breathing through their butts, and it was sent to us by one of our dedicated researchers, Robert. Um, Thank you very much, Robert, um, for this one. Um, He had quite a chuckle on this. Um, But a very interesting article, and it's from SciTech Daily, and it's a a little study that they did with... um, with mice, Mark, but um, getting back to the start of the article, it talks about rodents and pigs sharing certain aquatic organisms with the ability to use their intestines for respiration. And I know you and I have spoken about butt breathing in our reptile and amphibian friends, Mark. Um, they did a study that was published in the journal MED, and they demonstrated that delivery of oxygen gas or oxygenated liquid through the rectum provided vital rescue to two mammalian models of respiratory failure. And the interesting thing about this, Mark, um, this study was partially funded by the um, 
research projects on COVID-19 from the research program on emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. Wow. Um, because as we know, um, you know, the whole um, concern with, you know, lack of oxygen um, in, in countries like India and also oxygen um, generators, etc. cetera, um, that there's been a big, big um, rush on those for people that were suffering from it. So they're looking at different ways of supplying and or helping out respiration and, and reviving um, animals, and they were using this as a model, and they're thinking that they could then extrapolate that to, to humans there, uh, Mark. So in that study, Mark, um, they designed an intestinal gas ventilation system to administer pure oxygen through the rectum of mice. Wow. Through a pretty small tube, I think. <laughs> and no mice survived without the system more than 11 minutes with extremely low oxygen conditions. But with intestinal gas ventilation, Mark, more oxygen reached the heart. 75% of mice survived 50 minutes of normally lethal low oxygen Jeez. conditions. And three three mice flew off into the air um, <laughs> because they turned it up too high. No, I've been silly. Um, so. But then they realised that um, the intestinal gas ventilation systems will work, but they also abrade the intestinal mucosa. So they designed an intestinal liquid ventilation system to provide therapeutic benefits to non-lethal low oxygen conditions, Mark. And the mice received intestinal ventilation um, fared better, Mark. Um, they, they could walk further in a 10% oxygen chamber. More oxygen reached their heart compared to mice that didn't receive the intestinal ventilation. And they had similar results in pigs as well using the intestinal liquid ventilation with oxygen. Um, so, yeah, so taken together, the results showed that the strategy is effective in providing oxygen that reached circulation and alleviates respiratory failure syndromes or symptoms in two mammalian model systems. So, you know, perhaps in the future, Mark, um, that they might consider using these sort of techniques when they struggle. And, and I suppose that they're looking at trying to oxygenate animals or, or people in the future when they, they can't get access to those lungs that have collapsed and, and that they're not being able to function correctly. So a fascinating little little study there, but um, with a real click clickbait heading mark of no joke, pigs and rodents can breathe through their butts. And the um, the main picture there is a pig that's, um, well, it's it, have it, an it's unusual smile. It looks like it's a pig that's smiling, but it might be a pig that's screaming. <laughs> with my, um, yeah, it's um, perhaps it's um, received a bit of an overload. It's been to the oxygen bar, Mark, um, <laughs> up its butt, and um, it's feeling quite. Um, we'll have to quite what, high. What liquid oxygen. do you think there? What what? I'm sort of interested to know which liquid they're using. That what they're putting the the transports at a medium yeah. that they're oxygenating. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to. I'll try and um, click through to the actual article, Mark, while you while we um, talk about our main our main topic there. So yes, so there we go. That's my one and only news story, Mark. Um, and maybe sometime in the future, it can help all animals um, with possibly even humans respiratory issues. Yes. So our, our news topic, our main topic this week, so it's one that we've touched on in certainly in reptiles and we've had a specific 
one or two, definitely one um, podcast before on it, and that's UV lighting um, in, in reptile species. But we haven't really covered or done an overview of UV lighting in species other than reptiles. So that's what we'll cover today, and it's a bit of a broad topic. And, well, I'm going to summarise it in, in one sentence, Mark, um, <laughs> And that would be, um, assume all animals need UV and less proven otherwise. Well, it's, a, it's an um, interesting it, thing that you say that because um, because if you do talk to uh, even people who keep reptiles, there is a very, very narrow focus on the role of ultraviolet light in their lives and um, that, you know, the specific metabolism of uh, vitamin D and its effect on calcium metabolism. Um, and for many reptiles... Um, you know, I'll often one, I remember one very clear argument I had with a breeder of diamond pythons, and he was adamant that his snakes did not need any exposure to ultraviolet light. They could be kept for generations in tubs, um, and uh, and I, I I think that points to that specificity that people are really people who keep animals are really focused on the calcium metabolism aspects, but um, and they're important. Um, and one of those is one of my favourites to talk about with clients is uh, um, is our is our old favourite dental disease in rabbits. I think that um, as house rabbits become a more popular focus of uh, the interactions that rabbits have with our lives, um, dental disease is going to be a, a you know it constantly is in in practice an issue for us to deal with. But I think that that. Uh, Exposure to sunlight and ultraviolet light and as a form of metabolic bone disease in a species that's not a reptile, um, dental disease in our rabbits is going to be um, increasingly seen as a consequence of poor exposure to ultraviolet light. Absolutely. And it reminds me, just jumping in there, sorry, um, <laughs> with the rabbits, in that there was a fantastic study done many years ago in the UK that I often quote to clients and they looked at three groups of rabbits with exposure to sunlight or UV and they measured vitamin D levels in the rabbits, Mark. Um, they looked at wild rabbits and they looked at house rabbits, so rabbits that were basically 24-7 inside and, and no exposure to natural light and they looked at backyard rabbits um, because a fair number of people keep rabbits in the backyard in the UK and, and a reasonable number keep them as, as rabbits that just wander around as well, um, you know, free roam um, and then they're back in the hutch at night or whatever. Um, and they compared the vitamin D levels of them, Mark, and, and they found the level of the vitamin D in the wild rabbits was, was relatively similar to the level of the vitamin D in the in the backyard rabbits, no surprise there. The inside rabbits, uh, I think there were a few of the inside rabbits that they could not even detect any vitamin wow. D levels in them. So, um, and I, I frequently quote that, um, and I have to pull it out again, that article, um, to clients, um, especially clients that have them in, in those inside rabbits and we've spoken about the the house rabbit societies etc and and you know they they do a lot of good work um with um with promoting good care for rabbits but even with some people not certainly not, not many of them go too far and they don't recommend ever taking their rabbits outside for fear that they might be exposed to pathogens etc 
um, or foxes or whatever. But um, but I think it's I do stress to my clients, and I don't know about you, that they should be giving their rabbits access to natural light um, a few times a week, ideally at least half an hour or so. And that includes we have clients who live in apartment complexes in the central business district, for instance, and we say, look, you know, even if you take your rabbit outside on the on the balcony of your, yeah. of your apartment to, to, um, and just sit with them um, and just give them some natural light exposure. And I think um, while... Uh you know, our focus often is um, on reptiles, but uh, we definitely see um, many of the metabolic bone disease effects, even some of the subtle subclinical ones in other species as well, and rabbits are a prime amongst them. Um, but I was going to also mention the fact that we uh, see those metabolic bone disease consequences in many birds, and particularly the cabinet bred budgerigars and canaries, I think they're a good example of birds that uh, um, we just need to be conscious of uh, um, uh, the vitamin D exposure to ultraviolet light and the uh, um, the effects that has on their calcium metabolism. But I wanted to also take this opportunity to emphasise that um, there's a growing body of evidence that ultraviolet light is not strictly... Um, uh, you know, restricted its its role in in uh, animals' health is not simply restricted to those calcium metabolism issues. That there are certain um, immune functions that seem to be enhanced when animals have appropriate exposure to ultraviolet light. Um, there is, a, you know, just in our birds, they see in that spectrum, and and they can see different patterns and colours on the the. Uh, um, plumage of of cohorts um and though all those factors in improve their their general well-being so i think that i'm um, not just this obviously the the thing that we see regularly is the effect on um calcium metabolism but the effect of uh full spectrum sunlight and particularly ultra the ultraviolet part of the spectrum um is to enhance the uh um, general health of the animal, often through a direct effect on the immune system, but also to improve their quality of life and environmental enrichment because they can perceive that part of the spectrum. Oh, you're on, you're on mute, Brendan. I've been able to shut you up for a moment. <laughs> Good point. You could see me talking there. Um, yes, absolutely. But, um and although we're talking about, yeah, we we need to broaden the topic to, yeah, UV of all spectrum, not, um, and and that certainly includes the UVA as well. And you know, they uh, and, and I think that's fairly well um, proven in humans that the, the aspect of you know when you go outside, if you don't spend much time outside and you spend a bit of time getting some natural light, it's that feel good factor mm. um, of of being exposed to that and that whole process with the, not just the vitamin D, but you know, and, and they what a lot of people call vitamin D a hormone now, don't they? That that's involved with so many different things rather than just a straight vitamin. Um, so sitting outside, um, getting a little bit of natural light. Um, doesn't just make you feel good because you're taking time off from studying or doing whatever work you were doing, but it's actually providing a benefit to you. Um, but yeah, you make a fantastic point with the with the behavioural issues there, and and that I think we're being 
very human centric there when we when we think that gee just because we can see certain colors and spectrums that that um, we assume that other animals um, will be seeing that same spectrum and and we certainly and we know in the back of our mind that they certainly see a lot a lot differently than we see and that involves um, often that uv spectrum and and it is an important factor with with everything from breeding to behavior to social interaction etc i also um i think it's a, a country by country thing i'll be interested to hear any of our listeners that come from you know i um people that uh, maybe uh, from um the the north of uh, the american continent i know that we've spoken to colleagues before and and uh, they're very very conscious of because of their extended um uh winter and the period of time where animals might be bored inside, um, they're exquisitely conscious of that sort of stuff. And there's a big market um, in those parts of the world for appropriate ultraviolet lights, you know, to be placed over uh, um, birds or other animals that are uh, protected from the elements. I think here in Australia, our our good fortune with the very favourable climate means that we're we're not consciously thinking of that sort of stuff that, um, you know, it's a wonderful day outside, it's all very pleasant, um, but we're not thinking about how much exposure um, animals might be getting to full-spectrum light. And oftentimes um, those animals might be in a, in a room, free-roaming around, and, um, and the glass, of course, we know that picks out those most effective parts of the ultraviolet uh, spectrum, but many... Um, owners do not think about that and they often think you know it's fine my turtle uh, we're trying to avoid the reptiles but that's the classic one i see the the turtle in an aquarium by a window um, and you know it does get sunlight filtered through two layers of glass and that's useless for that uh, you know um, the benefit of that animal yep so we definitely need to start you know, having that conversation with our owners of all those other pets as well about, um, you know, do they are they receiving some natural light? If not, should they be? And you know, my answer to that is, is universally yes. yes. And um, how do we expose them to that and and have a bit of a chat to them about these aspects? You know, that it's not just involved with, you know, calcium, vitamin D metabolism. That we're we're talking about these other factors as well, and the general well well being of that animal. And and I think getting back to those, you know, that those guinea pigs or those rabbits that, that are just house animals, um, it's you know, it's it's that balance, isn't it, between you know, do we try and keep that animal in a bubble and inside as a house rabbit or house guinea pig or house ferret or whatever, um, or do we let them be a a ferret and and be have good ferreting fun and we have an outside run for them and lots of you know um, toys and pipes and things they can run around with and they can be exposed to a little bit of natural light um, that helps them um, generally so you know that's sort of my my four minute summary of it and it's a good the one of the things that when I talk to clients that uh, I find them getting very upset with is the you know their Particularly the zealously, um, you know, anti. The, no, the ones who are trying to do the very best they can, and so they're trying right. to keep their their rabbit away from the mosquitoes for myxomatosis. They're trying to keep the rabbit away from the flies, so there's not a problem with um with the uh, Khaleesi virus. Um, and then we're telling them to make sure they get sunlight. They they do get a little bit um. 
uh, frustrated, I think, sometimes with that discussion. And I think having it early and making sure that they have the, the facility to provide that without, um, you know, talk to them about insect-proof outdoor hutches, uh, making sure that they feel confident that they're serving both purposes well, um, that's a discussion worth having. Yes, risks and benefits, I think, yeah, um, as always with those, yes. Um, like with our kids, Mark, and I think we mentioned it before, you know, letting them letting them play in the playground and, and um, get all sorts of bugs and, and germs on them and eat dirt and all that sort of <laughs> stuff and, and get that immune system um, fired up um, or do we do we stress out and um, worry about them touching everything and, and get out the, you know, antibacterial wipes because it's COVID, it's COVID times. And I'm sure there'll be parents with young toddlers that, that that's all they've done with their toddlers, you know, and that they, that they, they constantly, you know, wipe in with antibacterial um, products and, and stopping exposure to potential COVID, but also a lot of bugs that perhaps um, would, would strengthen their immune system. So it's, it's, yeah. Um, we're right off topic there. <laughs> no, no, not that far off topic. So back. Because I think um, it does, it, uh, it is a, you know, we're one of the main things I think um, while it's a quality of life, a calcium metabolism problem, but there are actual immune functions that are, that are better when there's exposure to ultraviolet light. And um, so it is, as you say, it, it, there's no absolute do this definitely or do that definitely. It is a balance. You've got to uh, be able to um, find the right balance between. And um, and if you're not talking to clients early on about these things, um, then they will get frustrated because they haven't been able to set things up to provide the balance. And it's certainly frustrating and hard when you have that um, breeder um person or persons who who just wants to maximize the output of their their animals they're breeding whether it's the birds or the reptiles or, or guinea pigs or mice or rats and and they just won't have any thought of um you know adding these sorts of um um options um to the breeding thing i mean we we see breeders who are fantastic and they'll try and do everything to, to provide good quality of life for their animals but like you mentioned with those those reptile breeders um you you will get some of them that um will just refuse to consider putting uv light in in there and they'll they'll say look i've been breeding reptiles for 30 years and i don't see any apparent problems um i'd be interested with those reptiles that that i'd, I'd be comparing the you know the bone density and um you know those sorts of things with them that which i don't think there's any decent studies being done but um if you compare them to animals that are exposed to a spectrum of light um i'd be very surprised if we didn't see a difference um with them and it's a whole of um environment thing isn't it that um a lot of those uh animals are going to be more stimulated, be more active, and there's secondary effects. Then they, because they're more active, gastrointestinal blood flow is better. And um, and if you're a rabbit, um, the amount of exercise you do can have a profound effect on how healthy your gut flora is. So um, th- it's a um, holistic uh, approach, and I think as part of that holistic approach, an appropriate exposure to ultraviolet light is a good thing to keep in mind for all species. Absolutely. Now, Mark, I've looked up what that um, liquid was <laughs> that could um, transport the oxygen, and it was oxygenated perfluorodecalin, which is a liquid that has a remarkable absorbing capacity for oxygen and carbon dioxide. 
and it is a it's a it's a um, fluorocarbon. Wow! And it where all the hydrogen atoms are being replaced by fluorine atoms. However, it's chemically and biologically inert, and one of the main applications for it is to is because of its ability to to dissolve gases, mm. carry gases. So that's what they were using there, Mark. Um, yeah. So there you go. Um, a bit of um, trivia you, you don't need to know, <laughs> and you'll probably ignore. Um, yes. So any final comments regarding um, UV lighting in species other than reptiles as far as an overview, Mark? Oh, um, I think you said it to begin with. Um, if it if it's alive um, and uh, um, you want to provide it with the best possible health, then um, some exposure to full-spectrum light, particularly uh, making sure it gets good ultraviolet light for a period of time each week, is going to be a good thing. Yes, and let's enlighten all our clients <laughs> about that. And with that, Mr. Outro's here, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.